Productions present Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. whatever about that. The register of his burial was signed by the clergyman, the clerk, the undertaker and the chief mourner. And Scrooge knew he was dead. Scrooge and he were partners for many years. Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole friend and sole mourner. So there is no doubt that Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood, or nothing wonderful can come of the story I am going to relate. He was a tight-fisted hand at the grindstone, Scrooge. A squeezing, wrenching, grasping, scraping, clutching, covetous old sinner. Hard and sharp as flint, secret and self-contained, and solitary as an oyster. The cold within him froze his old features, stiffened his gait, and spoke out shrewdly in his grating voice. Once upon a time, on Christmas Eve, old Scrooge sat busy in his counting house. It was cold, bleak, biting weather, foggy withal. The city clocks had only just gone three, but it was quite dark already. The door of Scrooge's counting-house was open, that he might keep his eye upon his clerk, who in a dismal little cell beyond was copying letters. A Merry Christmas, Uncle. God save you. Bah, humbug. Christmas a humbug, Uncle? You don't mean that, I'm sure. I do. Merry Christmas. What right have you to be merry? What reason have you to be merry? You're poor enough. Come then. What right have you to be dismal? What reason have you to be morose? You're rich enough. Don't be cross, Uncle. What else could I be when I live in such a world of fools as this? Merry Christmas. Out upon Merry Christmas. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled with his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Uncle. Nephew, keep Christmas in your own way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good may it do you. Much good it has ever done you. There are many things from which I might have derived good, by which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. But I am sure 
I have always thought of Christmas time as a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. And therefore, Uncle, though it has never put a scrap of gold or silver in my pocket, I believe it has done me good and will do me good. And I say, God bless it. Here, here, Cratchit. Let me hear another sound from you and you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, nephew. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us tomorrow. I shall do no such thing, nephew. Now, good afternoon. Come, Uncle. You and Abigail have not seen one another since well before. Why did you get married? Because I fell in love. Because you fell in love? That's the only one thing in the world more ridiculous than a Merry Christmas. Nay, Uncle, but you never came to see me before that happened. Why give it as a reason for not coming now? I want nothing from you. I ask nothing of you. Why cannot we be friends? Good afternoon. I am sorry, with all my heart, to find you so resolute. I have made the trial in homage to Christmas, and I'll keep my Christmas humour to the last. So a Merry Christmas, Uncle. And a Happy New Year. Bah, humbug. A Merry Christmas to you, Bob, and to your family. And a Merry Christmas to you too, Fred. There's another one. It's my clerk. Fifteen shillings a week and a wife and family talking about a Merry Christmas. I'll retire to Bedlam. Oh, for heaven. What now? Scrooge and Marley's, I believe. Have I the pleasure of addressing Mr. Scrooge or Mr. Marley? Mr. Marley has been dead seven years. He died seven years ago, this very night. I have no doubt his liberality is well represented by his surviving partner. It certainly is. We were kindred spirits. In what way can I help you, sir? At this festive season of the year, Mr. Scrooge, it is more than usually desirable that we should make some slight provision for the poor and destitute, who suffer greatly at the present time. Many thousands are in want of common necessaries. Hundreds and thousands are in want of common comfort, sir. Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons. And the Union workhouses, are they still in operation? They are. Still, I wish I could say they were not. The treadmill and the poor law are in full vigour, then? Both very busy, sir. Oh, I was afraid, from what you said at first, that something had occurred to stop them in their useful course. I'm very glad to hear it. Under the impression that they scarcely furnish Christian cheer of mind or body... To the multitude, a few of us are endeavouring to raise a fund to buy the poor some meat and drink and means of warmth. What shall I put you down for? Nothing. You wish to be anonymous? I wish to be left alone. Since you ask what I wish, sir, that is my answer. I don't make myself merry at Christmas, and I can't afford to make idle people merry. I help to support the establishments I have mentioned. They cost enough. And those who are badly off must go there. Many can't go there. And many would rather die. If they would rather die, they had better do it and decrease the surplus population. It's not my business. It's enough for a man to understand his own business and not to interfere with other people's. Good afternoon, sir. Hmm. Good afternoon, sir. Meanwhile the fog and darkness thickened. At length the hour of shutting up the counting-house arrived. With an ill will Scrooge dismounted from his stool and tacitly admitted the fact to his expectant clerk, 
who instantly snuffed his candle out and put on his hat. Uh, you'll want all day tomorrow, I suppose. If it's quite convenient, sir. It is not convenient. If I were to stop half a crown for it, you'd think yourself ill-used, I'll be bound. And yet you don't think me ill-used when I pay a day's wages for no work. It is only once a year, sir. Poor excuse for picking a man's pocket every 25th of December. I suppose you must have the whole day. Be here all the earlier the next morning. I, I will, sir. Thank you, Mr. Scrooge. Scrooge took his melancholy dinner in his usual melancholy tavern, and having read all the newspapers, went home to bed. He lived in chambers which had once belonged to his deceased partner. They were a gloomy suite of rooms in a lowering pile of building. Nobody lived in it but Scrooge. The yard was so dark that even Scrooge, who knew its every stone, was fain to grope with his hands. The fog and frost hung about the black old gateway of the house. It is a fact that there was nothing at all particular about the knocker on the door, except that it was very large. It is also a fact that Scrooge had seen it night and morning during his whole residence. Also that Scrooge had little of what is called fancy about him. Let it also be said that Scrooge had not bestowed one thought on Marley since his mention of his partner that afternoon. Then let any man explain to me, if he can, how it happened that Scrooge, having his key in the lock of the door, saw in the knocker, without its undergoing any intermediate process of change, not a knocker, but... Marley? It was not an impenetrable shadow, but had a dismal light about it. It was not angry or ferocious, but looked at Scrooge as Marley used to look, with ghostly spectacles turned up on its ghostly forehead. The hair was curiously stirred as if by breath or hot air, and, though the eyes were wide open, they were perfectly motionless. That, and its livid colour, made it horrible. As Scrooge looked fixedly at this phenomenon, it was merely a door knocker. Not Marley. To say that he was not startled would be untrue. But he put his hand upon the key he had relinquished, turned it sturdily, walked in and lighted his candle. He did pause, with a moment's irresolution, before he shut the door, and looked cautiously behind it first. There was nothing on the back of the door. Thus secured against surprise, he took off his cravat, put on his dressing gown and slippers and his nightcap, and sat down before the fire to take his gruel. It was a very low fire indeed, nothing on such a bitter night. He was obliged to sit close to it and brood over it before he could extract the least sensation of warmth. As he threw his head back in the chair, his glance happened to rest upon a disused bell that hung in the room. It was with great astonishment and with a strange, inexplicable dread that as he looked, he saw this bell begin to swing. Soon it rang loudly and so did every other bell in the house. This might have lasted half a minute or a minute, but it seemed an hour. The bell ceased as they had begun together. They were succeeded by a clanking noise deep down below, 
as if some person were dragging a heavy chain over the cellar floor. The cellar door flew open with a booming sound, and then he heard the noise much louder on the floors below, then coming up the stairs, then coming straight towards his door. It's humbug still, I would believe. His colour changed, though, when, without a pause, it came on through the heavy door and passed into the room before his eyes. Marley's ghost. Marley's ghost. The same face, the very same. Marley in his usual waistcoat, tights and boots. The chain he drew was clasped about his middle. It was long and wound about him like a tail, and it was made of cash boxes, keys, padlocks, ledgers, deeds and heavy purses wrought in steel. His body was transparent, so that Scrooge, observing him and looking through his waistcoat, could see the two buttons on his coat behind. Scrooge looked the phantom through and through, and saw it standing before him. He felt the chilling influence of its death-cold eyes, yet he was still incredulous and fought against his senses. How now? What do you want with me? Much. Who are you? Ask me who I was. Who were you then? You're particular for a shade. In life I was your partner, Jacob Marley. Can you, can you sit down? I can. Do it then. You don't believe in me. I don't. Why do you doubt your senses? Because a little thing affects them. A slight disorder of the stomach makes them cheat. You may be an undigested bit of beef. A blot of mustard, a crumb of cheese, a fragment of an undone potato. <laughs> There's more of gravy than of grape about you, whatever you are. Humbug, I tell you. <laughs> Mercy! Evil apparition, why do you trouble me? Man of the worldly mind, do you believe in me or not? I do, I must. But why do spirits walk the earth, and why do they come to me? It is required of every man that the spirit within him should walk abroad among his fellow men. If that spirit goes not forth in life, it is condemned to do so after death. It is doomed to wander through the earth and witness what it cannot share, but might have shared on earth and turned to happiness. Your fetters, tell me why. I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will I wore it. Is it patterned strange to you? Or would you know the weight and length of the strong call you bear yourself? It was full as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eve ago. You have laboured on it since. Old oh, Jacob Marley, speak comfort to me. I have none to give. I cannot rest, I cannot stay, I cannot linger anywhere. In life my spirit never roved beyond the narrow limits of our money-changing hole and weary journeys lie before me. You must have been very slow about it, Jacob. Seven years dead and travelling all the time. The whole time. No rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. You might have gotten over a great quantity of ground in seven years. <laughs> Found a double iron, not to know that no space of regret can make amends for one's life's opportunities misused. Yet such I was. Oh, such I was. But you were always a good man of business, Jacob. Business? Mankind was my business. 
the common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. This time of the rolling year I suffer most. Why did I walk through the crowds of fellow beads and my eyes turned down and never raised them to that blessed star? Hear me. My time is nearly gone. I will, but don't be hard upon me, Jacob. Pray. I am here to warn you. You have yet a chance and hope of escaping my fate. You were always a good friend to me. Thank you. You will be haunted by three is that the chance and hope you mentioned, Jacob? It is. I... I think I'd rather not. Without their visit, you can't hope to shut the path I tread. Expect the first tomorrow, when the bell tolls one. Oh, couldn't I take them all at once and have it over, Jacob? Expect the second on the same night of the next hour, the third, when the last stroke of three has ceased to vibrate. Look to see me, no more. And look that for your own sake, The apparition walked backward from him. And at every step it took, the window raised itself a little, so that when the spectre reached it, it was wide open. Marley floated out upon the bleak, dark night. Scrooge closed the window and examined the door by which the ghost had entered. It was locked as he had locked it with his own hands, and the bolts were undisturbed. And being, from the emotion he had undergone, or the fatigues of the day, or the dull conversation of the ghost, or the lateness of the hour much in need of repose, Scrooge went straight to bed, without undressing, and fell asleep upon the instant. Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol Starring A.J. King Jez Hines Matthew Fisher Gavin Rand Christopher Maxwell and Terence Marshman Edwards Silent Night performed by Liz Keach Adapted for audio by Terence Marshman Edwards Matthew Ford and Matthew Fisher Original score by Andrew Gallagher Produced by Ben Wilson Christopher Maxwell Reese Jones and Teddy Smith. Edited by Reese Jones. Directed by Teddy Smith.